Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Wednesday, January the 25th, and you're very welcome to the weekly Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Remember that you can find Inside Politics at irishtimes.com slash podcasts, or you can subscribe via iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. And if you're a subscriber, we'd be really grateful if you could take a moment to rate or to review the show and also to share it. Today, I was joined by our political correspondent, Fia Kelly, and by Sinn Féin's Mary Lou MacDonald. We talked about the party's appointment this week of a new leader in Northern Ireland, the upcoming election there and the looming challenge of Brexit and plenty more. Mary Lou MacDonald, you're very welcome. Um, you were meeting some of the relatives of the Stardust victims this morning. That's right. They are in the doll today because a private member's motion is being moved by Tommy Brown uh, with the support of Sinn Féin and others which is asking the government to make good uh, a long-standing commitment to have an independent uh, investigation into the appalling tragedy and disaster that happened 36 years ago. So they've been in, they're in and around the doll. I know they're meeting with all of the parties. Their hope is that there would be cross-party support for this motion for a commission of investigation. I know that uh, Minister Finian McGrath has a long-term commitment in particular to the group and to the campaign. Um, so I hope that he keeps his word in that regard. I met with the families. I've met with them many, many times over the years with my colleague, Councillor Larry O'Toole, who's been long a champion of their cause, and indeed with uh, Deputy Denise Mitchell, who's the Sinn Féin TD for the area. So obviously they're, they're hopeful, but they're also very anxious because they've had so many false stones. Indeed, we're 36 years on. 36, there was an yeah. initial investigation, which I think it's you know it's very widely accepted, was not was not satisfactory, and then further investigations in That's right. almost 10 years ago now, and then arising out of those investigations, certain evidence from the time Indeed, it came to light. There was, there was a correction on, on, on the record in respect of any suspicion of arson, um, and the public record was corrected to make it clear that that was... That was only supposition that it wasn't, in fact, um, proven. And most importantly for the families, the good name of their loved ones, they were cleared because they, they had always felt that there was a suspicion that if it was arson, that somehow their loved ones were in the frame or could have been suspected of being in mm. some way involved. It has been proven without doubt that that was not the case. They were just like kids on a night out. surrounded Hillsborough as well. Exactly, very, yeah. very, very similar. So they were just young people out enjoying themselves. And the families have questions. They have turned up what they believe is very compelling new evidence. They have given that to the Department of mm. Justice. The department has it now almost a year. 48 people died, 214 people were injured. It was a catastrophe, the likes of which this city and country hadn't seen before, and I pray to God we never see again. And they want a a transparent, statutory-based inquiry. I think that's a reasonable ask, and I think after 36 years, government, whoever is in government, should 
should give way to that and should allow that to happen because other than that it seems to me we're on this endless cycle of scoping exercises and initial investigations why do we not just cut to the chase have the commission that the families are asking and some of the parents now are elderly they won't mind me saying they were saying to me this morning uh, Mrs Keegan of course who lost two beautiful daughters in the in the disaster is saying quite openly look you know, we, we need some form of, of conclusion and comfort. And Enda Kenny now has it within his grasp to allow that. And I really hope that he does. Well, let me ask you, Fiat, what's the state of play on that? And what is the resistance on the part of the government to Well, I think the state this? of play, as Mary Lou says, it's, it's, it's not finalised yet. It's going to be before the doll tonight. And the families have been meeting politicians like Mary Lou and Finian McGrath today. It's still talks, as we speak, are still ongoing between Finian McGrath and, and the government. I think the, the indications this morning were that there would be some sort of scoping exercise. But as Mary Lou said, it would have to be something different than the past. That the, the, There's no trust really between the families and the Department of Justice because they feel they've been around this circuit so many times. So I think what was in the offing at some stage earlier was perhaps a someone who would be acceptable to the families, an independent legal person who would have some sort of statutory basis, I think, but that person would be acceptable to the families, that it wouldn't be imposed upon them by the government, that it wouldn't be the Department of the Taoiseach or the Department of Justice perhaps picking someone, that it's someone that the families could have faith in. And this in, is that because of what happened previously, is it? Yes. This is partly because the families feel that, that the, the, the work which was done, as I say, nearly about 10 years ago, that some of the elements of that report were, yes. were tampered with or edited or changed in some unsatisfactory yes, they, way. They want a, a process that they can have faith is independent and will not be like you know will not be used by the Department of Justice to reach an end that they would like to see and is the Taoiseach's reservation on cost there's a bit of reservation on cost uh, about a commission of investigation is an expensive process um, but in the doll this morning the Taoiseach said he wasn't opposed to a commission of investigation mm-hmm. in principle which if you look at it in one way could be significant that he's saying look it, cost is no option if, if it's warranted but then again he didn't fully commit to one either right. just bear in mind when the last exercise uh the uh, coffee uh, process was gone through. The initial report that went to government recommended a an inquiry. And then the published version of that report, the, the recommendation for the inquiry was dropped. So the families have very good reasons not to have trust mm. in the system. They also have reasons um, to believe, don't they? I mean, and similar again to the, the Hillsborough parallel, that these were mostly young working class kids and that exactly their lives right. their lives were, were treated with less respect and dignity. Than and they I think that's the bit that really, really hurts them because as they said, um, the the business owner at the, at the time was compensated. They were never compensated. They're not looking for compensation. No money is going to bring uh, their loved ones back. But I think that they they feel it in a very deep sense that they have been deeply disrespected and they resent that. Mm -hmm. And I think they're quite right to resent that. So this isn't a a thing that's about politicians shouldn't be jockeying for position or point scoring. This has gone on for too long. The Commission of Investigation, it seems to me, is the best way to approach this. It's um, independence can be without question and the process can be rigorous exhaustive and can bring some form of conclusion to these matters. And I think that's only fair in in respect of everybody concerned, but particularly for the families. I think we owe that to them now. We'll we'll see some kind of developments in the the hours ahead. I want to move on and say this is a been a very significant few weeks in the history of Sinn Féin, the modern Sinn Féin party, hasn't it? Absolutely. Um, 
I suppose three things have happened. The most uh, significant uh, of which uh, I suppose is the the stepping down of Martin McGuinness, his decision to resign from the position of Deputy First Minister, a, a position that he arrived at with a very heavy heart. People will know that for the last 10 years in particular, Martin has worked heart and soul uh, to make a success of power sharing. At times, not just stretching himself, but stretching our base, uh, because people would have taken the view incorrectly, uh, in my view, that he was perhaps too patient, that he was too generous, uh, that he had no expectation of anything being reciprocated. Uh, but he did those things for the best of reasons and, and really went at it with a whole heart. And then we found this scandal emerge around the uh, renewable heat incentive scheme, all of the scandal around public money, all of the suggestions, which are growing, by the way, not diminishing, of interference and perhaps even corruption. And Martin uh, believed correctly that he really had no option but to tender his resignation. So that was the first part of it, I suppose. Then, of course, Martin's own health is a matter of concern at this time. He's unwell, but getting the very best of medical treatment. He's a tough cookie, is Martin McGuinness. He's mentally very strong. We're very hopeful that he'll have a full recovery, um, but he certainly arrived at the conclusion that he couldn't contest the election. So that was part two. Mm. And then, of course, part three is the coming into uh, office of uh, Michelle O'Neill as our leader in the north, the person that we would nominate for the position of deputy or even perhaps first minister mm. and who will lead the campaign for us in the north. And there's a, there's, so, there's a huge amount in all that, but maybe just to go back to, yeah. to, to, to the first of them, um, first of all, the, the, the collapse of, of, of trust, I suppose it's fair to say, in the, in the Northern Ireland executive. And without prying into the details of how Martin McGuinness's illness has developed over the last few months. Some people have suggested that if he'd been in the full of his health, this might not have gone as badly as it has gone over the last two or three months. That, as you say yourself, he always went the extra yard over the last over the last several several years, sometimes to the consternation of, of his own base. Mm. And maybe he wasn't in a position to do that because of his own personal circumstances as well. I actually can tell you that the opposite is in fact the case. Um... In this instance, it was an absolute requirement that at a minimum that Arlene Foster would stand aside whilst the initial independent investigation would be carried out. She was, after all, the line minister in respect of introducing this scheme. Um, from within her own party had come allegations that she had insisted on the scheme continuing and um, that there had been interference by her officials and so on. That's from DUP sources, not from us. Martin went to her privately initially and said to her, if I were you, I would stand aside. This is the correct thing to do. It's the only tenable thing to do. So the approach that was made by him was made privately. Um, there was no attempt on his part to create a, a drama or a piece of political theatre around this. And at that stage, he wasn't well. So actually, uh, I don't think his ill health deterred him from doing everything that he could do to keep the institutions live and to, to make uh, a success of this phase of, of power sharing. It, it's just they, they were not minded to do that. And the great uh, difficulty... Then, I suppose then the other side of that question is how much is this down to the relatively recent new leadership of the DUP? You could speculate uh, on that. And I, I think certainly the 
the position that Arlene Foster has taken and her demeanour hasn't helped, that's for sure. I think she has been perceived as adopting a very arrogant, very dismissive uh, position. But I also have to say that that position isn't limited to just her. And the deeper problem that we have, because the RHI issue now needs to be dealt with by public inquiry, which has been established by methods to claw back the monies, by introducing anti-corruption measures north of the border, which are which are needed. But we've a deeper issue as well in terms of sustainable power sharing. And that is that the DUP has to become Good Friday Agreement compliant. And that means understanding understanding fully what it means to share power with your nationalist and Republican partners and neighbours. And they're not at that point now, unfortunately, and they need to get to that point. You you kind of raised the prospect there earlier, Mary Lou, of, you know, perhaps Sinn Féin being the largest party after the elections. It's a bit of a challenge, but it's not an impossibility. Given what you said about the DUP, would you be confident that if the election threw up the result that Sinn Féin was the largest party and the DUP was the second largest party, that they would operate with that? Or would they kind of collapse it again and go to go to the people again in the anticipation that they would become the dominant player once or more. Or just live with, decide to live with would the they, Would they live with that? Well, look, first of all, the election is going to be a tough election for us. So anybody who thinks that we, you know, concocted a scenario so we mm. could have an election uh, isn't dealing with the reality. The realities are that we're down to five seat constituencies. So there's 18 less seats. That means all of the parties are going to lose seats including Sinn Féin. That is the that is the vista that we're looking at. So it wasn't with we w- this isn't about us trying to become the largest mm. party or trying to pull a fast one on but the it's system. A possibility now. Of course it's a possibility. I mean we're going to run uh, the best campaign that we can. We've an excellent slate of candidates and we will be out really looking for a mandate not to uh, damage or second guess the Good Friday agreement in Parishing, but actually to make it the real deal, to make it really happen. Mm. So that means that we'd simply want delivery of those things that we have already agreed. We're not putting new things on the table. We're saying Achtenagelga, for mm. example, agreed uh, at St. Andrews in October to- 2006. That needs to happen for, for us to have public co- confidence in the institutions and the new form of governance that is shared. There has to be public confidence that agreements aren't just simply put on a shelf mm. to gather dust and that they mean something. And the other thing is this, and in some ways maybe for a Southern audience, this can be a little bit difficult to grasp, but I hope I can express it well. The deep-seated sense within Irish nationalism, broadly cast, I'm not just talking about the Sinn Féin base, I'm talking about people who are Catholic, people who are green, people who are Fenians, use whatever term you want, that this is, these are their institutions, these are shared institutions. And if unionism or any section of it thinks that they can kind of grind down the Good Friday Agreement and somehow turn back the clock to the good old days of single party rule, that is that's not acceptable. And people need to see demonstrably the politics of respect and demonstrably the politics of equality. That's at the core of this. This is why we go what might seem to some of your listeners and readers from kind of, oh, here we go again, another crisis in the institutions. Mm. The only way we can fix that is to finally and decisively say, this is what power sharing means. But are there certain... Do you think think that the DUP are at that stage where they could accept Sinn Féin being the dominant party? in the Northern Assembly and in the executive. We're not even, I, I'm not even asking them to accept mm. us as a, we don't seek to be a dominant anything. I don't the want The larger them, party, sorry. Leave that aside. Of course they wouldn't like it. They want to be the larger party. That's politics. And I wouldn't criticise them for that. That's fine. What we need them to accept 
is that power sharing can only work on the basis of jointly sharing power. And that means respect for everybody. It means respect for minorities, for women, for Catholics, for Irish speakers. That's what it means. And that has to be delivered. So it means, for example, they can't block marriage equality five times Five times they've done that, despite the fact that there was a majority in the Assembly for it. That's not power sharing. That's not the politics of progress. But that, but, that's, isn't, but isn't, the, isn't the reality, is, and on one level that all sounds, sounds lovely, but we were discussing with Eamon McCann and a couple of other people some of these issues a couple of weeks ago in the, in the studio here. And obviously other things have happened over the last year or so, including the fact that some of the parties who were originally party to the Good Friday Agreement, um, the SDLP and the Ulster Unionist, are no longer in the executive, which in one way could be seen as a process of maturation of, of, of democracy in Northern Ireland, but in another way presumably puts more pressure on the parties who remain in the executive. What about this sort of argument which is made by somebody like People Before Profit who have taken a couple of seats off Sinn Féin at the, at, mm-hmm. at the last election, which is really that the kind of the, the tribal structures, the thing which you referred to earlier, I identify as green, I identify as nationalist, I identify as Republican, and that's my primary piece of identification, that it might be time to start to move on from those or is it too early to think about well, doing Can that? I just make clear that in, in making those remarks a few moments ago, I was not trying to suggest that those remain the primary or sole markers or that they should be. But I'm simply marking out a reality that the DUP have taken a stance that is deeply disrespectful to nationalists, to to otherness from their point of view, to Irish language speakers and so on. I don't want it to be like that. It doesn't have to be like that. And in fact, the people, I know the people who vote for us are beyond that politics now of simple, crude, if you like, tribal identification. And thank God for that. That is as it should be. This election actually is triggered by the RHI scandal, which isn't orange or green. It's a matter of good governance. It's a matter of fair play. It's a matter of of transparency. On the issue of, of, of opposition, and of course, parties are at liberty to do what they wish. And some people would be very critical of the uh, Assembly. And I understand why. It's not perfect and far from it. But in terms of walking away from government, let me give you an example of why the value of us being in government over the last uh, period of time with the DUP, and indeed the SDLP and others were at the executive at this time, the Tories had proposed a, a system of what they called welfare reform. There weren't reforms, there were welfare cuts. It caused huge difficulties. Um, The DUP were initially minded to go along with this. We put the brakes on that. We held out for years to stop those cuts coming to the north of Ireland as they swept across uh, Britain. We managed to get mitigation. We couldn't wish them away. We couldn't make them disappear. We got the very best deal that we could for people with disabilities, for people out of work, looking for work, on lower incomes and so on. And that was a really difficult process. And we got criticised by the likes of Eamon McCann and others on the outside. I would call them the hurlers on the ditch looking in because we couldn't get something that was perfect. Perfect wasn't available to us. But we held out to give every last shilling and every last bit of protection. Sounds very much like what you're saying there is the pragmatic realities of being in power, which you very often criticise the government down in Dublin for. Yes, making well, there the, is making, a, you know, getting, making the best, any, anybody best list who's, of things. Anybody who's charged with running anything of significance, particularly government, will be faced with difficult choices. And God help anyone who hasn't got some level of pragmatism in taking on that role. Here's the difference though. In the system within the North, as you know, you are faced with the reality that the purse strings and the power resides in real terms at Westminster. 
The devolved assembly has a number of powers. We don't have full fiscal powers, which is my personal soapbox. If I were to wish one thing over, that that is what I would wish. So it's not simply that you have to make the pragmatic choices. You're actually put in a position where you're fighting a rearguard action against Tory, uh, the t- Tory rule in London, which is a different story than in the South. So, I mean, I've never, and we would never challenge the fact that anybody in government in Dublin, you're going to be faced with difficult choices and you have to make them. We've never disputed that. What we, the, the wrangle, if you like, that we have had with successive governments is amounts to this. How is it that the tough decision is always the decision that hurts the little guy? Mm. Why can't we make some t- tough decisions that actually reach up into the upper echelons given of the, society? That would be our view. Given the kind of what, what Amy McCann said about you and what you've now said yes. about Amy McCann. Is this I, a by fl- the way, I like yeah. Amy McCann. <laughs> no offence to Amy McCann. Is this a flavour of perhaps what you we're going to see in Dublin in the five, ten years in the line, like I was struck when there was Northern Ireland statements last week in the Dáil and we had both Richard Boyd Barrett and uh, Paul Murphy stand up and turn to their right as, the, as it is in the chamber and say, you guys were an establishment party, you'd done nothing in the North and you were a right-wing party. Would you, you'll have to face that criticism if and when you went to government in Dublin as well and you're prepared to face that. Oh, absolutely. You will have your critics and I, I would argue that you're actually not doing your job right if you don't have your critics. And people are entitled to critic and it, I suppose in some ways it's parts of the checks and balances on your work is, is that you face that criticism. But I have to say this, for anybody to suggest that the process of building peace, including the institutions, the assembly, the north-south bodies, that they haven't delivered, hasn't acquainted themselves with the facts. They're not plugged into reality. Have they delivered everything? No, they haven't. They're not in a position to. We'd be the first to acknowledge that. Are the DUP very, 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 very difficult to be in government? Yes, they are. Do we need to change all of that? Yes, we do. Because despite the progress that we've made, the north is is not uh, an entity in which you can have normal politics as we would understand it. Power sharing is in place for a very good reason because we are dealing with a contested jurisdiction, a contested border and a very bitter history, not just of conflict and armed armed actions, but also of institutionalised, deeply ingrained sectarianism and discrimination. And we have a responsibility, whoever we are, whatever our views on other day-to-day policies, see on the basics in terms of human rights and dismantling discrimination. For power sharing to work, we all have to be on the same page. So this election for us will be about getting the maximum mandate for that and to actually bring the DUP, one would hope, onto that. With with that in mind, so if we're talking about um, southern politics, where do you see Sinn Féin's main competitors? Are they to the left, to the PVP and the AA, or to, to the right in Fianna Fáil? In, in terms of the, the overall politics of the state, uh, I, I believe that we are the main party of opposition. I, I don't see Fianna Fáil as an opposition party. That's our mm. positioning there. Obviously, they're watching us. We're watching them. Mm. You're watching in, the, in the game of no, well. but in the game in the in the arena of politics, wouldn't you be terribly stupid not to be watching sort of what's going on uh, around you? Constituency by constituency, the dynamics are are different. I always advocate, um, you know, proceeding to your own plan and playing your own game. I think you can, if you get into the business of of, of ball watching, 
you, you get caught out. And what, what, what I also advocate to our, to our own people is bear in mind where we're all doing all of this because so, sometimes for political anorexia this is all great mm. fun and great sport and who's doing what and who's in and who's out and who's up and who's down. You see, for the people that I represent in Cabra mm. or in the north inner city, they're not really, they're less concerned with that as they are concerned with the housing lists and the health service and so on and so forth. So you have to kind of keep yourself grounded mm. in that. But of course, the field is competitive. Um, I, I would, if I had one wish, I would wish that that very competitive political dynamic would actually bring out higher voter turnout in elections. Because we needn't call ourselves, mm. whatever about the politics in the North, the politics in the South uh, has in common a reality that lots and lots of people still don't see that it's mm. actually worth their while going out to vote. Mm. That's a big problem. You're listening to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. This week I'm talking with Mary Lou MacDonald and Fia Kelly. And just to let you know that tomorrow at 6pm we'll be recording our podcast in front of an audience for the first time here in the Irish Times building in Tara Street in Dublin. And our guests will include political scientist Theresa Reedy, Minister for Social Protection Leo Varadkar and our political editor Pat Leahy. This is a special event for Irish Times subscribers in association with the Politics Society at Trinity College Dublin. But we've held back a very small number of tickets for other podcast listeners. So if you're listening in advance of Thursday evening and if you do want to come along, do drop us an email at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But now back to our conversation with Mary Lou. One of the things that would strike me about our Southern listeners is, like myself, they wouldn't have heard very much about Michelle O'Neill until mm. they heard she had been appointed to lead, to lead the party in Northern Ireland. Maybe you could tell me a bit about her and what her appointment or election to this position tells us about how Sinn Féin is, is going to position itself over the next few years. Well, Michelle is um, a very experienced uh, politician. She has held two ministries with agriculture and, and health. She's currently the, the health minister in this uh, administration. Uh, she had prior to that served as a councillor and, and mayor. Um, she is a person who is, uh, how would I describe her? I suppose one of the most fair-minded people that you could meet. She's a, she's a person who is uh, very approachable, very, very decent, very down-to-earth. So there's no airs and graces uh, from her. She's from Tyrone, so maybe that's no great surprise. Um, and she's a, a person who will knuckle down and do the hard yards and get the work done. And I can't second-guess because it's the prerogative of the party leader, obviously, to make the final recommendation on the post and there was lots of people who were considered and, and able but I suppose when it came down to it the fact that uh, Michelle brings energy and those personal experiences and skills to the job that uh, led to She's her also somebody who was only I think I'm right in saying 21 when the Good Friday Agreement yes. was signed so she's very much of that post-Good Friday Agreement generation Certainly. although she comes from a strong Republican, Republican family, family absolutely. Uh, in, in, in Tyrone so it does seem to reflect a, a, an ambition by the party to move on now oh, to listen, post, and it does raise the question I suppose yet again you know I'm going to ask this mm. about Gerry Adams the departure of Martin McGuinness a lot of people have pointed out in, in the last week or so that one of the differences between Martin McGuinness and Jerry Adams, or that Martin McGuinness acknowledged to a much greater extent his involvement in in uh, in, in Republican activities in the in the in the seventies and eighties. And Jerry Adams still seems to carry this burden with him in that he was never in the IRA, which nobody believes at all. Well, the appointment of Michelle is a generational 
change. That that's what it is. There's no there's no pretense that it's anything other than that. And yes, Michelle comes from a different generation than Martin McGuinness. And she's a woman. And she has, although we were looking at some of the coverage, her being described as mother of two <laughs> takes yeah. on. But she is, as it happens, a mother of two very fine, uh, two very fine young adults. So that ch- that change is uh, real. The party is changing. The generational change is underway. We have, as you know, Fich knows this, a, a 10-year plan. Mm. We're beginning to sound like Enda with his five-point plan. We have a 10-year <laughs> plan, which we've gone out to our grassroots. We'll be going out to them again now um, later in the spring on the on the 10-year plan. So all of that is is happening. Jerry will not go on forever. Mm. Nobody, not you, Hugh, not I, no human being, not Fich even. Mm. He's not only he, a kid. He is only a kid, yeah. <laughs> goes, goes on forever. So as and when those changes come about, that'll be within the remit of Sinn Féin to decide that, um, as I'm sure you'll appreciate. And Martin and and Jerry have been very much uh, such a strong political duo. And for people who know them well and who work with them, they're very complementary, but they're very, very different people in their approach and in their, even in their mannerisms and, and so on. They're, and I think, I always think in some ways it, it, it reflects the difference in kind of tempo and character as between Derry and Belfast. Because they're two very different, as you know, mm. kinds of of cities. Um, but, but I suppose the reality is, isn't yeah. it? This is Jerry, nearly everybody else of the protagonists of the the period leading up to the Good Friday Agreement and the period after has now left the the, the public stage, and Jerry's the last one left. Does that not mean the clock starts ticking a bit louder? No, well, I mean that that would be for him to decide how loud the the clock is ticking. Jerry's not. Is it not for the party to decide? No, it is. It is, of course, for the party, but it's also. It is also for the leader. Mm. I mean, unless in circumstances where leaders are sort of deposed or toppled or whatever. Um, but generally speaking, organisations like ours, we're a collective leadership. We have a huge organisation, North and South. We're involved in very serious business. It's not trivialities. So things like uh, how we develop and how we change and how we transition, are very, it's important that, it, that it's done correctly. Mm. And it's it's very important for us that it's done in a way that uh, meets with the confidence and the approval of our membership and our base, who bear in mind elected Jerry as their leader at the last Ordesh and for whom, and I mean no disrespect to the fine people of the Irish Times, um, the view of the Irish Times is kind of an interesting but ultimately irrelevant sidebar to the decision that they would, they'll arrive at. You often hear political parties when they're going through a change of leadership and transition say that debate is healthy for the party, that mm. the party arrives at a juncture and it has to decide its future and you're obviously deciding a personality but you're deciding the future direction of the party the as well. Party, of course, yeah. So do you think it'll be healthy for Sinn Féin when that happens that there, will there perhaps be a couple of weeks where you and other aspirant leaders would talk to the party about where they want to see it go, what direction they take and what direction would you like to take the party in? Um, I, I, do, I don't know. Um, to be honest with you, as and when the circumstances would arrive, what the precise shape might be. Or, or it would how be that healthy might for the membership to have Mary, a debate. Debate is always healthy. And mm. let me tell you, our people constantly debate things. Mm. Anybody who imagines that Sinn Féiners are kind of sheep they're kind of, you know, or robots mm. that just go along. It need to mm. come to some Sinn Féin meetings. Mm. That's not how it shakes Gladly. down. Believe, open the doors. believe me, <laughs> believe me. So, of course, that's good. And of course, it, it's, it's important that we settle on a dynamic pathway for the party. And, 
yes, parliamentarians, people in leadership are part of that debate, but the grassroots is part of mm. that debate as well. Um, and we're very anxious to ensure that we don't go the route of other political parties that become almost exclusively parliamentary mm. in their decision making because we happen to think that that... There's almost be a uniform move away from that. I think any party has an exclusive parliamentary party. You know, it's, I think everybody's moved away to some sort of grassroots involvement. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's important. Well, we never kind of moved mm. away from it so we don't Stand have to up, go yeah. back. But um, So that's important. It's important that our members are at all times sort of the democratic mm. decision makers of, of policy you, and indeed leadership. You, you've said on numerous occasions that, you know, you, you would be interested when if and when the mm-hmm. situation arises. So you must have some sort of idea of what, what you would like the party under your leadership to look like. Would it look much different to what the party looks like now or what different ideas would you bring to it? Well, listen, Phil, there's no, there's no leadership con- contest underway. Mm. Um so, so I'm not. So I'm not going to speculate out loud. I don't think it would be appropriate. And I, I, it's important that I say this. Mm. And let me repeat it. Yes, I have said. And let me repeat that. When the time arises, I would like my name to be considered mm. uh, for the leadership position. I have said that now. I don't know how many mm. times to how many people. That that is my it's definitely view. on the record. Okay, I'm I'm on the record on that. I don't say that in any uh, spirit of presumption. I have no automatic entitlement to that. There are others, I am sure, who may well consider that, and that's a good thing too. So we'll have choice. We'll have options, and the discussion around the future of the party, of course, um, is very much vested in and around the leader, who is Jerry Adams. Uh, at this point in time. But it's it's broader than that. Mm. And the issue of leadership, yes, who is the leader is a question. Like in the case mm. of Michelle. Michelle is our leader now in the North. Um, but it, it it's not simply down to Michelle. It's not simply about Michelle. Effective leaderships are collective. They can work as a team. And yes, of course, there has to be somebody in charge. That's absolutely essential. But they can't, if they drift from their grassroots... Um, th- then in, in my view that that's when you get yourself yeah, into, into trouble. Can I ask you then about something to do with, crucially to do with policy which is the Sinn Féin I think it's fair to say more than any other party that, that is organised in the South anyway is defined by its constitutional position or mm-hmm. its, position, its position on the constitutional mm-hmm. relationship between the United Kingdom and Ireland mm-hmm. and that relationship is just about to head into its most kind of profound change that we've seen in a generation or two generations. How is Sinn Féin going to approach that and how, in what way will that approach differ from the other parties in the Dáil, for example? Well, we're a united Ireland party. We're for an ending to partition and the establishment of a democratic Ireland right across the board. And we had a conference at the weekend where we started to, well, not started, but we continued teasing out some of the issues. And I was making the point then, and I think it's important to make it again, Uniting Ireland isn't about grafting six counties onto the 26. It's about creating something new, something agreed and something that affords constitutional latitude to accommodate different ideas, to ensure compliance with people's civil religious liberties, their human rights. I think it's a very exciting prospect. Brexit, which I assume you're alluding to, of course, raises... um, the, the scenario where, for instance, Enda Kenny has been heard to speak out loud about the prospect of a united Ireland 
I know that there were people looking out their windows to see where their pigs flying across the Dublin skyline when they heard such an unexpected person referring to that. But I, I think in a real way, it puts the whole issue of the relationship across this island with our neighbouring island uh, on the table. We have said that in order to essentially protect the market on our island, the political institutions on this island, the citizenship rights of people north and south, that what the government needs to to seek is a special designated, designated status for the north of Ireland within the European Union. We think that's eminently doable. I know it is novel. I know it is a departure in some uh, regards, but we strongly believe that that is what the government need to argue for. I also understand that this is now the Fianna Fáil position, as I understand it. Um, in terms of the relationship with the neighbouring island, I suppose the one thing that looms largest um, is the issue of trade, uh, the issue of tariffs and barriers and what the, and, and the real effect of the, the fluctuations in sterling for businesses here. And the disruptive effect on the border in general in, in terms of how this all plays out over the yeah, next well, couple uh, of years. Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the border sort of east to west, yeah. Mm. I mean, we cannot countenance a border, mm. hard, soft or otherwise, on the island of Ireland. That would just be intolerable. It would be utterly disruptive um, to agriculture, to commerce, to people just going about their daily lives. It, it would also, uh, in, in the absence of special status for the North, put a huge, create huge difficulties for the architecture of the Good Friday Agreement. Isn't the reality that a special status for the North within the EU as part of Brexit would also be sought, if, if it were to be granted as part of the process, by the Scottish nationalists as well? Well, the, the Nicola Sturgeon and I think the Scots ably articulate their own position and it is for them to seek uh, wh- whatever it is that they, they seek. I wish them well in that regard, but that's for Scotland to 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 debate uh, we have to in the very first instance decide ourselves what it is that we need to do and what position we need to advance and advocate that protects us to the maximum amount possible and I'm very disappointed to see the Taoiseach and I think he means well but when he's asked about Brexit he recites a list a list of things that are concerns we all know what the concerns are but the strategy has to be not just about listing our concerns, but in a coherent way, figuring out what then is the position that we advocate publicly, that we can get behind Mm. to actually get the best deal for Ireland from the European institutions on the one hand Mm. uh, and from from other players. Would would it be correct to say that for Sinn Féin, the unity conversation, it's always happening, but it's now more of a a medium-term objective. I remember the day the referendum result came out, we had Sinn Féin figures saying that a border poll was Mm -hmm. being brought forward the conversation is not that same conversation now. It's about the practicalities of Brexit, making sure the island is protected. Is more of a is more of a kind of a, a medium term goal now, five, ten years, twenty years, rather than a border poll within three years. Well, we still seek a border poll, mm. and the, the Good Friday Agreement makes allowance for it. I mean, it's that we're yep. all signed yep. up to that as a, as a process. I'd like us but to. It wasn't. I think it was last year you did it. You had a campaign where there was. Meetings yeah. about a border poll. Yeah, and, and bear in mind that there will be still ongoing discussions and mm. campaigns and advocacy for a, a border poll. But we're in the situation that we're in now. Mm. And there has to be, I suppose, a real politique uh, of how things are working out now. And to be absolutely frank with you, the idea of Ulster farmers, irrespective of their view on the constitutional issue, uh, imagining that they're just going to carry on regardless 
in, in the advent of a Brexit, which means that 80% of their income stream, which comes from the common agricultural policy, is cut off and that that isn't catastrophic for them, mm. uh, is just not living in reality. So, yes, I- I- if you like, we're taking a, a, an approach on, on this matter, which is extremely practical, mm. extremely in the moment now and also extremely necessary, but it doesn't take from our position and our unionist friends and neighbours. In terms of of practical, can I paint a picture for you? It's it's March 2019. Theresa May has come back with a very hard Brexit proposal to the House of Parliament, which is going to be voted against by the SNP, the majority of the Labour Party, and by a substantial number of her own backbenchers. It's in the balance, and Sinn Féin could tip that balance and reject that deal on behalf of its voters in Northern Ireland, but it refuses to attend. Is that a difficult decision to make, to abstain? Well, I think if you got that lineup of uh, forces um, facing down the Brexit deal, I think it would be voted down. Uh, as we speak, it, I understand that the British Labour Party is minded to support the concept of Brexit on the basis that there's been a popular vote. And, and but the concept so of Brexit on. might be different from the reality of a well, deal. Well, I, I, have, I have absolutely no doubt that it will be, Hugh, because I have absolutely no doubt that um, this whole thing wasn't properly thought out. Um, and I have absolutely no doubt that lots of people who are advocated for Brexit uh, did so in the full belief that the Remain position would carry the day. So the lack of thought, game, set and match, you're quite mm. correct. But if the vote were on a knife edge... In, in, um, it, it, in the House it, of Commons. it will not be on. I don't believe it will be on such a knife edge. We're we're an abstentionist party. We do not take, and we will not be taking our seats at Westminster. We are elected on that basis. We will not sit in Parliament in London. We're Irish Republicans. We're United Irelanders, mm. and we will not sit at Westminster. Your uh, Northwest MEP Matt Carty made a very interesting speech last year, in which he talked about various roads to a united mm. Ireland and he kind of seemed to be almost like Brexit in a certain way he kind of be hinted at transitional arrangements mm. and you know I don't know if he raised kind of a federalist structure where you could perhaps, perhaps have a Northern Assembly incorporated into United Ireland is that an approach that you think could lead the way to full unity in years in the we, line like would you look at a federalist system on the way to something else we published a discussion document to foster discussion and debate and in that document we put in all sorts of different scenarios and and ideas and we're open to discussing all of them mm. and I think we have to come at that debate in in that spirit we'll of course have our ideas as uh, Republicans mm. I'll have my ideas as a Dublin woman mm. you know of a certain age and all, all that but it, it's so important for this discussion to work that we have to make room for everybody I suppose most crucially to make room for our loyalist unionist uh, citizens who feel their Britishness uh, and they're loyal to the, to, to the crown uh, in some cases very, very deeply and very profoundly and who have a different view of the world from us. Mm. So there's very little sense in us talking to each other. I don't have to convince my fellow Sinn Féiners of the merits of Irish unity. What we do have to uh, foster is a conversation with unionism whereby we can get a scope out, to use that mm. term, the, the, the options and, and the alternative routes, because it's not necessarily a binary thing. Mm. I, I think that there are there are places in between. Alex Kane spoke at our conference at the weekend. He's a very interesting and proudly unionist uh, journalist. Mm. He writes for the newsletter. You know, Alex, yeah, no, his stuff yeah, is fantastic. Yeah. He's a very, very thoughtful man. But, you know, he put down a couple of markers for us in terms of 
unionism and what it'll hear and how open it might be to the conversation. So in some ways, our first challenge is to open up the door to actually have what will be what my colleague Declan Carney calls difficult conversations, challenging conversations, but we can have them. And I think if the the, the Martin McGuinness, Ian Paisley's Chuckle Brothers scenario demonstrates it, it's this much, that you can never say that you can never have a good relationship or reach a level of understanding with anybody including your most avowed enemy or the person who is most diametrically opposed to you. So I think we should take some inspiration and some confidence So you're looking forward to Chuckle Sisters in the future? (laughs) Indeed. Chuckle. I'm not sure that they will be chuckling. I I look forward to the very busy... business-like delivery mode which women are so good at last last question just you know there are going to be conversations going on Sinn Féin in the next couple of years I think maybe I'm open to correction the decision was made in Sinn Féin before the last election that would be a two election strategy that the ideal would be to go into government as the senior party would you go into government as the minority party in a coalition well, the decision uh, was taken at our our desh, um that that would not be the case, and it was taken for good reason. People are understandably anxious mm. when they look at the experience of other political parties that have gone into coalition and that have either, in the minds of some, sold out or left their politics outside the cabinet uh, meeting room or have just not measured mm. up and not performed. And we are very clear that we are not in the business of doing any of those things. Our, our ideal uh, scenario, obviously, would be to ha- to be the largest uh, party. That's not out of any sense of kind of ego or uh, any of that business, but simply because the stronger you are, the better your chances of delivery are. So obviously, we, this is one of the conversations that we, that we are having and that we need to continue within the party. I want us to be in government. I believe that we will be in government in, in the South. I also can tell you, from my point of view, we won't be in government for the sake of it. It won't be about personal careerism or for for the cheap thrill of, you know, headlines or, you know, the history-making moments of it. We can only go into government when we are confident that we are in a position to deliver. And I, I don't mean that just as woolly rhetoric. And how will we know that we'll, we, you're delivering? I know very quickly when I go back into my home area. I know I only have to walk to the shops in Cabra and it's made very clear to me yeah. how I'm performing. So we have to live up to, to expectations that would be there. But you're right, Phil, that's a conversation that, that we need to be having between now and the next election. Thanks very much indeed for coming. Thank you so much. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer Jennifer Ryan and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter at hlinehan. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.